Hi, and welcome to the eFundamentals Digital Shelfcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping growth-driven CPGs win online. My name is Julia Glotz, and I'll be your host for the show. Every episode, I'll be speaking with industry experts about the latest trends and challenges in digital commerce and how you can drive growth online. We've packed each show with practical insight you can apply straight away to keep you ahead. So make sure you subscribe today and don't miss out on any of our thought-provoking episodes. We're available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for spending time with me today. And now let's jump straight into your monthly dose of e-commerce growth inspiration. Hello, and welcome to the Digital Shelfcast. It's great to have you with us. This episode, we will be looking to answer one central question. How do you maximize visibility on the digital shelf? CPG brands certainly have a lot to get right in order for their products to be found by shoppers on retailer websites and marketplaces, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Statista data from the end of last year shows that 33% of shoppers worldwide start their product searches on retailer sites, and a whopping 63% of online shoppers go to Amazon to start searching for products. So if your brands aren't visible on these sites, you have a problem. And the challenges don't end there. To maximize visibility on the digital shelf, you've got to grab people's attention within a matter of seconds. That means rich, eye-catching content and engaging product descriptions, but not too much, or you actually risk overwhelming shoppers and distracting them. So it's a fine balance, and there are lots of moving parts for CPG teams to pay attention to and optimize. How can they do that? What's the best strategy? And what can shopper psychology tell us about how to grab shoppers' attention? To help us answer these questions, we're joined by Mark Bainbridge, co-founder of Dragonfly, a company that helps brands improve the effectiveness of online content and experiences across digital channels using heat maps and predictive analytics. And we're also joined by John Maltman, CEO of eFundamentals. And both companies are now partnering to help brands optimize their visibility on the digital shelf. Welcome both. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, before we open up the discussion, we always like to get a sense of our guests' own online shopping habits. So tell us, Mark, what's the last item you bought online and where? And was there anything about the buying experience that really stood out to you? Uh, Yeah. So, um, well, I I live in the depths of the country, which is wonderful in many ways. But it also means that that we're quite reliant on, you know, internet-based services. So I buy a lot primarily from Amazon. It's simpler than driving into the local town. The last thing I bought, not very exciting, was dog treats, but um, essential to, to modern living where I am. Finding product is is really easy, and clearly the way it's all served is designed, you know, to leverage our, our natural behaviours. And you know, the beauty of it, it gets delivered next day seamlessly, you know, just through through a matter of a couple of clicks, which is great. With everything being just a couple of clicks away, it means the algorithms behind the shopping experience have to get smarter and smarter. And I, and I think they have done, you know, they're much more intuitive, but they get things right. Whereas previously my experiences where they, you know, you might order some baby clothes for a friend and then they assume that you're in the sort of that, that stage of life cycle and you get hit with loads of equivalent ads. But 
I think, you know, shopping is made so easy now. The only downside, I'd say, is probably the amount of packaging we have to deal with. And, and honestly, as a, a cyclist, the peril of time delivery-driven vans racing along country roads is a bit of a physical issue, as is the last mile. I mean, we probably get five separate deliveries here a day, which, you know, has a startling sort of environmental impact. Absolutely. I think we can probably all relate to uh, drowning in cardboard at the moment if I just look around my own living room here. Now, John, when we've had you on previous episodes, you've always had really interesting items that you've bought. I do remember a gazebo at uh, at some point. So I have high hopes for your latest online purchase. Tell us what you've been up to online. Well, I hope I don't let you down. We had a, a toilet malfunction. The flushy system wasn't working. And I'm not particularly handy, but a couple of YouTube videos convinced me that I could do this. So from YouTube onto Amazon, found something that looked like the thing that the plumber was using on the video. Next day delivery, a couple of days thinking about it. And voila, new working toilet in the downstairs loo. So very happy with that. And it was quite an interesting journey in how YouTube was the gateway to the purchase Absolutely. That's very impressive. Excellent. Now, Mark, at Dragonfly, you specialise in tracking and analysing online shopper behaviour and really delving into what makes online shoppers tick, how they behave, what grabs their attention. Could you just give us a crash course on the key behaviours that CPGs need to know about? What are three things, perhaps, that really drive behaviour and gaze when shopping online? A really, really interesting question. Thank you for Proposing that one. So, so we actually believe in, in two rules of five. So I'll explain each of them. The first is what we call the natural biological five, which is driven by the, the five neural pathways that the brain uses when it's ingesting and prioritizing content. So not surprising, you know, we are using human logic when we're doing this. So the first is light and darkness, so we can detect the differences between, you know, light sources. Textural differences we can see, you know, without having to sort of touch them. We can we can innately tell, tell that, you know, that the difference between, you know, a wooden surface and a soft bar carpet. Contrast and edges, which define things. And then we've got kind of colour, perspective and shape. And then the final one is patterns and orientation. So we have this incredible ability as human beings to spot anomalies in pattern designs. So imagine like a repeating wallpaper where one of the symbols is switched sort of 45 degrees. We instantly see the anomaly in in the pattern. So the natural biological five are are basically the core of what sits within our our software. Um, We we emulate that. So every time we look at a piece of content, we apply those five pathways. And it shows us what the human brain sees in terms of sequence and attention priority. The other five um, are the primary areas of what we call the zero moment of truth. We know that in that first instance of engaging with content, you know, the human brain can primarily ingest and make sense of about five principal areas in what we call the precognitive state. So we have to make a distinction between precognition, with prediction, if you like, which is, you know, the, the ability to use the, the natural biological functions of the brain to understand, you know, what's likely to attract attention. And then the the secondary, which is the system two thinking, which is all our kind of learned behaviours, our top-down processing, and the things that make us unique and emotional and human, um, we do nothing in that space. But what we do know that in that first sort of moment of truth, the human brain basically can cope with about five principal content cues. So, you know, for brands, it's really important to understand which they are and are they delivering the right ones they want the consumers to see. And what's the most surprising thing that you've learned through your research about how humans look at and behave on online shopping sites? Is there anything that's perhaps counterintuitive? 
Well, perhaps not counterintuitive, but we certainly know there's a sort of central centre-weighted bias to the way we look at particularly the online environment. So, and I think I think you know the the big you know, online retailers have spotted this, that, you know, they put their premium products in, in the centre of view of the page, then you will get more attention by the sort of nature of how we look at content. It's different in other environments where, you know, we have to take much more, you know, awareness of the kind of context that content's being produced in. So, you know, out of home, for instance, we know that, you know, it's not just the big billboard you're looking at, no matter how impressive it is, it's the context of where it is, and the speed you're passing it. So I think, you know, we definitely see certain sort of features which help us to understand that that we can we can almost kind of play with consumer attention once we've understood it you know we can make sure that the things we want people to see are being seen and where we're seeing real advantage for that is when brands are using that to sort of almost pre-test their content to make sure it's human ready before it gets published anywhere they're getting the dividends they're seeing you know marked results uh, the other thing I, I'd say which I think is really interesting about it is it it takes the subjectivity out of creative you know, so I was a very, very poor former sort of CMO in, in life before this work with, with Dragonfly. And I suppose my observation there is, you know, the endless creative debates you would have with your agencies, you know, I, I like blue, they like green. We would argue endlessly about which was the right solution. What we're able to do now is to show you what works. So it also helps us to make, you know, better judgments based on human insight rather than based on our subjective bias. Fantastic. Very interesting. Now, John, visibility on the digital shelf is, of course, one of those topics that's been talked about in e-commerce circles for some time. We've talked about it at various points on this podcast here, but it's really now climbing up the agenda as CPGs. From your perspective, what is driving this and how have the events of the past 12 to 18 months been driving the discussion around visibility? Well, I certainly agree that visibility has moved up the agenda. I think it's driven in part by the, the massive rise of e-commerce, particularly in grocery, over the last 18 months. Along with that, retailers have found many ways of marketing and selling their own digital marketing assets to brand owners. So you see the issue of increasing importance, particularly as budgets get switched towards digital marketing. And then, of course, shareholders in those companies are demanding clarity about the return on investment from that extra expenditure. So it's a very high focus area. I think the other big change for me is that a couple of years ago, 18 months ago, a lot of the discussion about visibility was about simplification and standardization. And that's changed completely now, in my view. It's clear to the content producers they need to produce a lot more content. They need to vary it. They need to play into seasonal moods. And simply sort of having a standard and then just issuing the standard for, say, an image is no longer sufficient. The, all aspects of the, the, the content and the way it's presented need to be very carefully thought through and need to be relatively dynamic uh, to keep relevant. The other thing for me is you, when you think about visibility, think about everything that has to be visible. So it's not just the product content, it's the banners, it's the sponsorships you use in search. It's the, the videos that you make to make your product accessible. It's all aspects of the presentation of, of the brand. And therefore, it's how it appears on digital shelf, in search content, and the, how you present your, your, your product data. So there's lots of aspects to it. And most of our clients now are paying really careful attention to getting that right. 
I'm really interested in what you were saying about this move away from standardization. Again, can you sort of pinpoint a moment or something that's happened specifically in, in the past 18 months or two years that's really driven that move away from wanting everything standardized? I think it's been driven by the, the retailers, particularly in the US, realizing that e-commerce for grocery was going to be, be very big and that they had an opportunity to keep it growing by improving the shopper experience. So I think now they're working incredibly hard to figure out what does a great shopper experience look like. And that means doing it in such a way to reflect their offer to the shopper. So, you know, I think that if you look around US retailers, they all have pretty strong and individual characters. And that's now getting reflected in their websites. And, the, and I think that it's that desire to make a great shopping experience that is creating the differentiation. Now, we're saying that visibility has become more important for CPGs. It's been climbing up agendas, but there are occasionally still some blind spots as well, aren't there? Which aspects of visibility in your experience do CPG brands typically not pay enough attention to? We'll stay with you, John, for the moment on that. I think that one of the opportunities that, that is, I think, becoming more and more important is the ability to tie all aspects of presentation together. So thinking about how do banners and investment in banners relate to position and search? How does that relate to the content that you're developing? And how does all of that relate to how you're spending on trade spend and promotion? So rather than seeing them as different pieces, bring them together as a whole and thinking about the investment across the whole piece and how do you make sure that it adds up to a great offer to the shopper with presentation that is relevant, engaging and persuasive, that zero moment, a truth moment. And Mark, are there any particular aspects of visibility that you find CPG brands, brand owners are typically neglecting or not paying enough attention to? I'm not sure I would accuse them of neglecting. I think they spend an enormous amount of time looking at making sure that their content is, you know, as as visible and attractive as possible. But I think uh, our experience is that, you know, content is something we produce an enormous amount of. I, I think I read somewhere that the, the latest stat is something like, you know, 200 million items of content are produced every 60 seconds, which is slightly frightening in itself. But the reality is with so much, a particular lot of it being used generated as well, you know, get, getting cut through in any context is really important for a brand. So I think they, they're right to fixate on, you know, their product skews, what's going to go, you know, to the digital and into the physical aisle in terms of packaging, because there's an awful lot of, you know, a competition for attention, in effect. So if you can find things that help you to differentiate in that space, that just give you a bit of an edge, that help you to sort of, you know, see not just what you're doing, but also what your competitors are doing. Because at the end of the day, you could, you know, produce the best product in the world, but in perfect isolation, only to find when you stick it on the shelf, you know, next to its competitor set, that they've also been, you know, putting their best energies into trying to create the best and most attractive design capability they can. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, using any tool at your disposal you can to understand more about that your context is, is, is vital. Fantastic. As I mentioned in the introduction, your two companies are now partnering to help brands improve visibility on the digital shelf. John, when you first came across Dragonfly's technology, what was it that caught your eye about what Mark and his team are able to do? Why do you think it's so powerful for CPGs? What I liked about it right from the start was how Mark and his team had taken all of that deep knowledge that they have and turned it into a really practical 
experience for the user. And I remember the first demo I saw was a Formula One broadcast where they were able to highlight the high points of interest that brands were creating as cars went through the track and how that varied for different brands. And so the ability to, to, to find very practical, easy to understand applications for what is some really strong science, I think was really what intrigued me about what they're doing at Dragonfly AI. And then, of course, they ran our website through the, through the mill and we saw lots of opportunities for improving that and that certainly got my attention too. I can imagine. Um, Mark, while we're on the subject of Dragonfly, in the introduction, I described your work as involving predictive analytics. I think we should probably explain what exactly that is and how it can help CPGs. Well, I'll, I'll do my best to do that. Yeah, so, so predictive analysis basically means we have the ability to predict what human consumers are going to see. So at the core of our AI we use the same biological formula that the human brain uses. And the academic research that sits behind that tells us that that formula is a universal. It's the same natural biological process across the whole humanity. So people quite often say to us, well, you know, is this specific to a, a segment or, or a particular you know, demographic? And the answer is no, this is telling you how humans will respond in that first instance. The brain uses a biological formula, which we're continuously using as we ingest content and prioritise what we see. So we, we're probably not using it particularly at the moment because we're all sitting still. But you know, if we were to get up and move around, our brain would start to, to process what we were looking at and make sense of it for us. So we don't control the process. Um, so what Dragonfly does, it instantly shows what consumers see first. So when we apply our solutions, you know, so we have an app application for, for our iOS device, which means that we can take it into physical environments so we can see how visual merchandising is working, how products performing off-shelf and in-store. We have a, a studio-based product, which is really good for static content. So we run things like packaging, advertising, point of purchase, um, we have got a Chrome extension, so we can do the same for digital assets. And we've actually just launched a motion solution, which is what John was talking about. Early days, we were doing some motion analysis for people like um, F1. Uh, we're now routinely doing you know, visual analysis on social feeds, on TV commercials, on rich media, on video content, you know, and, and it's giving insight. I mean, the only thing I would say about using Dragonfly in videos, quite often there's a kind of propensity to use it at the end of the edit process, which is a dangerous time to use a tool that tells you whether it's working or not. Um, what we do is we kind of turn the maths that the brain uses into attention data. And that allows us to produce visual maps, which um, I hope our clients are finding really helpful so they can see heat maps and opacity maps. We've also got metrics we can put on top of it. What it helps us to do for our clients is to basically help them to understand whether they're delivering the communications hierarchies of information in the way they're intending to or not. And if it's a kind of case of or not, then they can use the tool to iterate the design until you know, it's totally you know, optimized for human attention in effect. You've just said using the tool right at the end of the editing process, particularly when you've been spending quite a bit of time and money uh, putting together a video, is perhaps not the right time to use that. When would be the most sensible point to bring in your tool to sort of drive the creative process? So given it's a fairly new launch of, of the product dimension, the, the video content, our, our view is probably you should be doing it when you're constructing the keyframes right at the beginning because then you can make sure that the things you're hoping to deliver in each is being delivered. By the time it gets to the edit, you might want to use it after a first rough cut. The challenge of doing it right at the end is if, if there is an issue and, and the client decides you know, that they want the agency to change it and there's already a spot time you know, purchased for a, a TV ad, 
I think that must put an enormous amount of pressure into the relationship between the two of them. So I think our advice is, you know, always use Dragonfly as early as you can. You know, you'll get the insight uh, and then you can use it to, to mould and shape the, the, the creative the way you want it to be. And it'll tell you how it's, how it's performing, which is, you know, a c- considerable advantage on how production processes were before. And John, how does what Mark is doing at Dragonfly fit in with how eFundamentals looks at maximising visibility? What are some of the key factors driving online visibility that you would tend to focus on when working with CPGs? And how does Dragonfly's approach complement that? I think, first of all, I think we start from a similar place in that we want our clients to make great returns from their investment in using our service. I think Mark and Dragonfly AI are are similar in that. So we love partnering with companies that bring tools that have direct application that can help you to strengthen your offer to online shoppers and that that basically answer an obvious and clear question, is our presentation as strong as it needs to be? So we're natural partners in that sense. As we look at content, we're doing two things. First of all, is the content that the client believes is important? Is it showing up? Is it showing up in all the retailers that they want it to show up in? And then secondly, is it showing up in the right places? Is it showing up in the key search positions? Is it showing up on the digital shelf in the right categories or sort of things? So the, the questions we're answering are very different, and that makes Dragonfly AI a good company to be partnering with. And how can brands use the insights they gain from both of you to influence retailer decisions. Mark, if we perhaps start with you, could you share any examples of where insights from Dragonfly perhaps led to a retailer making a change to website design or any other examples of where brands were able to leverage your data to affect change at the retailer end? Sure. So I I probably have to steer off talking about specific instances, but I can talk generically about sort of areas where we've had a a positive impact. I think, you know, as I've mentioned already, Dragonfly kind of produces these opacity maps, heat maps and metric overlays, which helps us to understand what our content is delivering. So, you know, bearing that thought in mind, it can do lots of different things. You know, it can take cost out of research because we can do things faster and it's at the touch of a button and it's all instantaneous. You know, we train it into our users to help them to take, you know, I think I've mentioned the bias out of creative decision making and it helps us to make better, more impactful design decisions. So brands can, can, can optimize their products from you know packaging design to, to planograms. They can test context on and offline. They can test their SKUs before they go anywhere. They can also test competitor data. So they can look at you know what the competitor's doing and how it fares. So they get a much clearer idea of at the point of destination where the, the, where they interface with the consumer, you know, how this how this product, how this content is going to be received. It's a great leveler. You know, it helps brands and their agencies deliver better, more impactful content. And that ensures that, you know, the position in in physical and digital aisle is given optimum prominence to their products. So we find it has a really clear role to provide, you know, objective insight in that kind of three-way dynamic between, you know, FMCG, CPGs, the marketing service agencies that work with them, and the retailers that, that basically sell their products. So they all have an interest in ensuring the consumer engages with the products on and offline. So it's, it's kind of a, it's a triple win. Everyone gets some benefit from it, really, as does the consumer, because they find products you know, relative, relative to their need more simply. So what we do simply explains whether we've got you know, their attention or not. And this has yielded some really impressive performance improvements. I mean, you know, it sounds a bit, bit grandiose, but 
probably between 20 and 60% in some instances. So we've certainly got a physical retailer who's seen customer purchasing increase by a figure of 60% over a period of a year using Dragonfly at the point of purchase to optimize attention focus on what they want the customer to see. And then we've seen it, you know, in the digital context produce, you know, 30, 40% improvement if to, to efficiency. Now, you know, that, that's typically of a website that might not be doing what it was hoping it was doing. So it's obviously easier to make an effect and, and change and improve a result. You know, some instances we find the website has actually been designed very intuitively by a designer and, and not surprisingly because they probably naturally use some of that natural processing capability in the way that they design content. So, you know, we, we, we can always show something which is really good whether the brand or the, the, the you know the website owner is is able to do something about it is entirely up to them but we can show them what's happening quite quickly absolutely and john how would you recommend cpgs leverage your data in combination with what dragonfly is able to do again in retailer discussions i think one of the interesting things about our market is that many e-commerce retailers are very open to the idea there's still a lot to learn and therefore will engage in discussions with suppliers about how best to present content. And if I may, one of the areas I'd suggest that that discussion should be very active is the presentation of new products, because I think that is an area where retailers could do an awful lot better. And I think being good for innovation is a part of a winning formula at retail. In terms of e-fundamentals, all our discussion has been largely around individual brands on this call. Because eFundamentals takes a complete category view, very often that brings insights that are relevant to the category. Let me just give you a little example on search. If you go onto any retailer's site and search for coffee, then there's a lot of options in coffee, yeah, from the real cheap sort of powder, two, three pence a cup, all the way through to a capsules, which can be 60 pence a dollar a cup. And what's interesting to me is how the search results in one retailer can very much favour the economy versions of coffee, whereas another retailer, there's a balance between economy and, say, premium and super premium. And it's particularly instructive to look at how that balance changes between, say, Amazon and, say, a bricks and clicks retailer. And, you know, we're all searching for profitability. And how you present assortment, for example, can be a key driver of profitability. And my experience is that retailers are really interested in those discussions and that most retailers feel there's quite a way to go into managing mix to get a profitable one. Fantastic. Now, finally, let's quickly look ahead to the future and some future trends that are coming down the tracks. What CPG industry trends are you seeing today that you think will make visibility on the online shelf an even more important topic than it is today? Mark, I'm going to come to you. I think without a shadow of doubt, social commerce, which is going to basically turn a massive commitment to social media into a, a trading opportunity. I mean, uh, you know, it's early days. I think, you know, it's, it's already established itself in China where effectively, you know, you, you have to use, you know, the, the, the kind of state-sponsored sort of technologies in order to purchase. And, and if you don't use them, you can't really buy much. Then I think we're going to see more brands investigating social commerce I think it's a really important growth area and, and I suspect massive dividends to take your e-commerce inventory into a social commerce environment, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, there'd be great gains for early adopters. Fantastic. And John, what's the uh, key trend that you believe will make visibility even more important than it is today? 
I think the need for dynamic content, so changing content frequently to keep relevance. I think retailers more and more will want customized content that fits the way they want to present products. And I, I think that the tying together all the ways that you can uh, invest in getting content, so banners, sponsorship, product content, and managing them together, I think that's going to change the way people think about investing in this area. Now, we'd like to finish our episodes by asking our guests about their one essential piece of advice they would like to give our listeners. And we call this your hashtag 20 second smarts. So, Mark, what is your one essential piece of advice on shelf visibility? So in a world super saturated with content, don't underestimate the importance of predictive attention. I think if you, if you don't grab your consumer in that first instance, you're not going to get them back. But if you do think about what you could do with your content, if you could understand exactly you know, what sequence it's being digested and how the visual information you're providing is, is being used, you know, we'd be delighted to, to explore that with, with anybody interested in finding out a bit more about what we can do. Fantastic. And John, what's your 20-second smarts on shelf visibility? Two things. Do a lot of experimentation. There's a, there's a lot to find out in this area. So work with your retail partners to experiment on what works. And then secondly, be demanding of the agencies that provide you with content. They need to deliver content that works and you should be demanding on that and look for proof points in that. Fantastic. Now, before we wrap up, we have exciting news to share about an upcoming joint webinar about the very topic we've been discussing today, in which you'll also showcase the heat maps that we've been talking about. John, can you just let our listeners know about the webinar? It'll be hosted by us. So do check in our LinkedIn page, eFundamentals, for updates and also check out our website, eFundamentals.com slash webinars. Fantastic. I'll certainly be signing up. Mark, John, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Great to speak. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Digital Shelfcast from eFundamentals, the only podcast dedicated to helping growth-driven CPGs win online. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and got some useful tips for how to navigate your brand's success on the digital shelf. If your brand faces a particular online challenge, or you want to learn more about leveraging digital shelf analytics to fuel growth, then why not book a free consultation with the eFundamentals team? Simply visit efundamentals.com forward slash podcast and book your free consultation. You'll also find the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, we'd also appreciate it if you could give us a rating and leave a review. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.